Well, before we get into this last episode of 1 Samuel, will you please join me as I pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to the realities and the tragedies of life that we experience. Heavenly Father, please help me now to speak clearly from your word this morning. And we pray that you will help us hear your voice clearly through this tragedy of Saul. And we pray that you'll help us grow in how you want us to live our lives in light of the hope that you give us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you're like me or if you're like Nick that we heard in the kids' talk this morning, but when I choose a movie to watch, I need to know that there's a happy ending. I I want the hero to win. I I want the guy to get the girl. I want everyone celebrating at the end. So you can imagine my disappointment when I watched the movie Titanic. Seeing that the bad guy got into the lifeboat. That Jack didn't live with Rose and lived happily ever after. That movie didn't have a happy ending. Contrary to the theme song, my heart did not go on as I watched that movie. Far from it, my heart sunk as it went down with the ship. No doubt your heart sunk, possibly for different reasons. But movies aside, when it comes to real life, we all don't like unhappy endings. To have an ending that, where there's no hope, it has to be one of the darkest of all human experiences. When a person's future has absolutely no positive prospect to it, it can strip away that person's motivation for getting up in the morning, and it can lead to a life full of misery and emptiness. The book of 1 Samuel has an unhappy ending. And unfortunately, it's unavoidable. It's the culmination of all the warnings that King Saul got. It's the the culmination of all the mistakes that he made. And it all comes crashing down on him and on his family and on the nation of Israel. There will be some important things that we need to listen to as we look at the tragedy of Saul. But in the midst of this tragedy, there's a glimmer of a hope of a happy ending for those who do things God's way. Uh, Let me get you up to speed to where we're up to uh, in the book of Samuel. Now, even though Saul is still Israel's king, God has chosen a new king to succeed him, which is David. Now, because of that, Saul wants to kill David. And David has been on the run for the last six chapters. And we saw last week that David had confronted Saul twice to proclaim his innocence. And twice, Saul repents. And then we see at the end of chapter 26, Saul is returning back home. While David doesn't join him, but he stays in the wilderness. 
And this morning we're going to actually cover very quickly chapters 27 to 31. Now even though there's a, a, there's a lot happening, there's different places, different names, different characters, at, at the heart of these five chapters, it's all about David and Saul. And the stories of both of these guys are told in parallel. As you see, both of them are driven by very human fears. But the outcome of both of them is so different. And so this morning we're going to see four things. We're going to see chapter 27, where David goes over to Philistine. Then chapter 28, when Saul is in distress. Then we'll skip to chapter 30, where we see David in distress. And then chapter 31, the end of Saul. And so, the start of chapter 27. We see that David, he doesn't trust Saul. That's why he doesn't go back to him. So that's why he goes back and he decides to go, not only stay in the wilderness, he decides to go back to the Philistines. You see, David's thoughts here, is actually taking a very different turn here. He's beginning now to think that God's protection of him would actually one day fail. Where one day Saul will finally get him. So that's why David decides to flee again to the Philistines, like he did back in chapter 21. It seems like David is experiencing the, the kind of crushing doubt that I imagine most of us have actually experienced one time or another. Now David offers the services of himself and his men to Archish, the king of Gath. And since the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Archish is very keen to have David and his men part of his army. Now before we write David off here, uh, the rest of chapters 27 uh, tells us that David and his men, they spend their time attacking different nations in their local vicinity. But they're actually nations who are ancient enemies of Israel. You see, during the time of Moses, 500 years ago, God had commanded the Israelites to wipe out each of these nations because of their wickedness. And so under the facade of serving King Archish, David is actually fighting Israel's battles that were left unfulfilled by Saul. So that's chapter 27. Let's go to chapter 28. And we come to uh, seeing Saul. And what's happening for Saul in the background? Well, the Philistines are actually mounting a humongous war against Israel. And given that Samuel, the prophet, is dead, and God has been silent to Saul, well, Saul finds himself in a depth of desperation that he hasn't previously known. Now the narrator reminds us that under the better days of Saul, Saul had expelled all those who performed witchcraft. And this is consistent with the Old Testament law that's outlined in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. However, because Saul is so desperate, well, he deliberately breaks God's commandment that he himself had enforced in his kingdom. 
and he sets out to find a medium to consult. Uh, So we're now on page 462 in the Blue Church Bibles, and in verse 8, Saul's men have found a witch in Endor, and Saul makes his way there. Now notice, at first the woman is actually hesitant to do anything. But Saul is persistent in getting her to bring up Samuel. And so in verse 12, Samuel appears. Now I know what you're all thinking. I know what you're wondering. Did the woman actually have the power to bring Samuel back from the dead? Now, please note that the text doesn't actually say she's got powers. It just simply states that Samuel appears. I reckon it's far more likely that God sent Samuel to Saul that evening. You see, the dark powers of this woman, if she possessed any, are actually irrelevant to the main point of the narrative. But if you have questions about this, please, please, please ask me during question time. Looking at the text, Samuel's first to speak, and they're not words of comfort. Samuel says to Saul in verse 15, Verse 15, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul replies by telling him that he is, and the words are, he's in great distress because of this impending war with the Philistines, the fact that God has gone silent on him. So he feels he has no one else to turn to. Now what Samuel says next is nothing new. Samuel simply repeats what he said to Saul back in chapter 15. That was because of Saul's disobedience for not wiping out the Amalekites when God wanted him to. That's why why all of this is happening to him. But there's one new item that Samuel tells Saul. And that is, tomorrow, Saul, you and your sons will die. Well, upon hearing Samuel's words, please have a look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he has eaten nothing all that day and all that night. So by the end of this chapter... Saul is a helpless and hopeless wreck. Now while Saul is visiting this witch in Endor, in chapter 30, David and his men arrive back to Ziglag, their city, where they find their city burnt to the ground and their wives and children are taken captive by the Amalekites. So please check out how they respond to the situation in verse 6 of chapter 30. So we're now on page 464. Please read with me verse 6 of chapter 30. Verse 6 says this. Verse 6, David was greatly distressed 
because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So, not only has David lost his family, but he's in a very dangerous predicament right now with his men. And notice that the David's circumstances, they're described in the same words that Saul used in Endor, where David here is in great distress. So like Saul, David was getting desperate. But there's one big difference between chapter 28 and chapter 30. That is, and we see it here. In verse, we see in chapter 28, Saul's strength was gone. Where we read in chapter 30, verse 6. But then we see in David, his strength. His strength is in God. You see, the strength that David found came not from himself, but from the one who has promised him to be king of Israel, the one who's in control of all things. Now, verse 7 of chapter 30, David seeks to see what God has to say about the situation. And he does this through the priest, Abathar, and through the special linen, Ephod. Again, you see, David's very different to Saul here. Because when Saul was in distress, who did he turn to? He turned to the forbidden uh, for, uh, world of witchcraft. Whereas when David was in distress, he turned to God. And God tells David to pursue the attackers and ensures them that he will be victorious. So the text keeps going and David and 600 men go off to rescue their families. But have a look at verse 9 of chapter 30. Verse 9, uh, verse 9 says, When they got to the Bessel Valley, 200 of the men were exhausted, and they couldn't continue. So David allows the 200 to stay in the valley, while he and the other 400 continue to make their way. And then we're in verse 16. David and the 500, they find out where the Amalekites are. They defeat them. They rescue their families. Everyone's intact. But not only that, David and his 400 men take all the plunder from the Amalekites. So, the scene in verse 20 of chapter 30, it's one of a joyful reunion. It's one of celebration. So everyone's they're happy that the victory's happened. But when the 400 rejoined the 200, the ones who stayed in the valley... A few of the men say to David in verse 22, let me paraphrase, they basically say, hey, those 200, those lazy slackers, they shouldn't get any share in the plunder because they didn't lift a finger to help us get it. And then David responds to that complaint in verse 23 and 24, where on page 465, Please look at verse 23 and 24 with me. David says this to, the, to those 400 men. Verse 23. David replied, No, my brothers, we must not do that with what the Lord has given us. 
He has protected us and delivered us into our hands, the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David is articulating here what living under grace looks like. You see, grace isn't about fairness. Since their plunder hasn't been earned, but was a gift from God, well, no one has a greater claim than it than another. That's why David says that all are to share alike. But knowing that, if we kept on reading verse 26 to 31, David actually shares the plunder with a whole host of people, from the elders to Judah, to all the Israelite towns that they visited along the way when they went to find the Amalekites. And so we get a glimpse of the type of king that David will be someday. A king who's not like Saul, who's all about taking. No, rather, a king who gives. Now, while David's coming back from victory over the Amalekites, we come to chapter 31. And chapter chapter 31 tells us what happens to Saul as he and his army are battling against the Philistines. And chapter 31 tells us that the Philistines are winning. In verse 30, Saul is now critically wounded, and so he asks his armor-bearer to kill him, as he doesn't want to be killed or humiliated by a Philistine. But just like David before, the the armor-bearer does not want to raise his hand against God's anointed, and what we read is that Saul kills himself. And even though Saul wanted to escape the humiliation at the hands of the Philistines, well, verse 9 and 10 actually tell us that death didn't spare him that indignity as Saul was beheaded and his headless corpse was impaled on the public city wall. So as we compare the endings of both Saul and David we see that Saul has failed comprehensively as David has succeeded. Now the death of any human being is tragic. As we see in chapter 13, as we witness the death of Saul, it's actually appropriate for us to pause and recognize the tragedy of human death. Now, the Bible doesn't make a comment on the fact that Saul took his own life. However, we have to be very clear that Saul taking his own life doesn't make things better. Taking your own life never does. Now, we should respect the Bible's silence here and not condemn Saul for his final act, but neither should we think for a moment that his act has any sense to it. You see, it actually magnifies the tragedy, not lessen it. 
However, the death of Saul actually has his own particular tragedy. You see, Saul was God's anointed to rule over his people. Imagine what Saul could have been. Yet Saul continued again and again to grow in his pride and his independence of God, where, like building a brick wall, each brick, which is another instance of disobeying God, another instance of rejecting his rule, another instance of rejecting his word. And by the end of his life, Saul has built a wall that blocked God out. And God responded to him by being silent. Saul's story is a tragic story that you don't want to repeat. But what happened to Saul doesn't actually have to happen to us. You see, many years later, there will be another king who was God's ultimate anointed one. And he too was handed over to the nations to be humiliated. Where his body was hung as a public object of horror and disgust. But the similarities between the death of Saul and the death of of Jesus actually serve us to highlight an important difference. Saul died for his own failure to trust God and his failure to serve him faithfully. Whereas Jesus died as one who completely was obedient to his Father's will. And it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that the tragedy of Saul, a tragedy of a life without God, without hope, doesn't have to be our story, as Jesus took the judgment that a life like that deserves. You see, it's through trusting in Jesus as our King that we can actually be like the families in chapter 30, the ones that got saved through David, They got rescued from the captivity of the enemy and in the end were part of a joyful reunion, one of celebration. So if you're here and you haven't asked Jesus yet to rescue you from the tragedy that's like Saul, then let me encourage you to see Jesus afresh, to consider making the decision to trust him as your king and saviour. So that the ending of your life doesn't have to be the unhappy ending that Saul had, but the total opposite. Because the kind of king that David was shaping out to be is the kind of king that Jesus actually is. A king who gives. You see, Jesus is the king who will give you eternal life. A life where there is an extremely happy ending. A life that you can really look forward to. A life that's full of hope. If you want to find out more, please chat to myself or Peter M. or Carmen after the gathering this morning. 
And if you're here and you are trusting in Jesus, then the happy ending that we're going to have should shape how we live now. And like the 600 who followed David, well, we too live in light of grace. And that will affect us in so many ways, but one way will affect how we see each other. Because of what Jesus has done for us, well, we're to treat each other with grace, as opposed to mistreating others or looking down on them like that 400. Because at the centre of our lives is the fact that everything we have is a gift from God. None of us have earned it, which means none of us have a greater claim to God's goodness than another person. The grace of God demands that we share alike. Now, I reckon we all find that pretty hard. But you find it hard to live like that sometimes. I know that I struggle with that a lot. But at times, I find it hard to share or to be generous or gracious with others. And the reason why we find it hard is because deep down, I reckon at times we don't fully get how awesome and how great God's grace actually is. I know that it's so easy for me personally to to get stuck in my thinking of my own entitlement, to think that I deserve this, and I need to keep coming back to the gospel, to keep coming back to what Jesus has done for me. That he has rescued me from a very unhappy ending to now giving me a very good ending. And to let that change my selfish and proud and stingy heart. You see, it's as we keep growing in our grasp of God's grace to us, that God will keep changing us of how we see others and how we in turn are gracious to them. Gracious to them with our, with our time, with our resources, with our very selves. Can I ask you, are you letting the happy ending that you have in Jesus shape how you live now? What would being gracious look like for you this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your awesome and amazing grace that's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that the ending of our lives doesn't have to be like Saul, but we can have the ultimate and happy ending in having eternal life with you. Heavenly Father, we confess those times when we don't let your grace shape our hearts where we've refrained from being gracious and generous with each other. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will grow us in our grasp of what you've done for us in Jesus and that you will change our hearts so that we will be a people who are gracious and generous and good.
We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.